We're right where our motto suggests is the theme of our corporate life together as a congregation loved by God. Believers are loved by God in a very, very special and unique way. And I suppose we could ask the question, what are we emphasizing in this church motto of ours when we say that we are loved by God? Let me see if I can help us see what this means for our lives as Christian people. As I have with some of these other attributes that we've covered, and I frankly wish we could go down the list and cover all of the attributes of God the Father, but this will conclude some of those attributes as we focus upon Him, our Father in heaven. And I ask, as I have asked before in this series of messages, what is the love of God? What is the definition? Secondly, what does the Bible say about the matter? What's the biblical basis for affirming that we are loved by God? And then thirdly, how can I know of this love? How can I know of this love? First, what is it? Secondly, how does the Bible define it? And thirdly, how can I know of it? Let's talk first of all about this love. What is its definition? And we have to be, frankly, very, very careful because it is very fashionable and even historically so to say, especially as Calvinists, that God does not love the unbeliever. That's very fashionable. It's taught by many in reform circles. But really, when you ask the question, does God love the sinner? Or does He only have a love for the saint? You find that the Bible does not support such a concept, at least in a sense. While it, of course, is true that God loves the saint, the Christian, the elect person, in a very, very different way, which we'll see very clearly this morning, the Bible does teach us that God loves everyone, at least in some sense. And we'll see that as we go through the biblical basis. And so, right off the bat, when we talk about the love of God, at least as we see it in its most generic way, we could say something like this. God's love for mankind in general is His benevolent regard for His creation. That's what we could say about the love of God. He has, in a general sense, a benevolent regard for His creation. Just as we talked about grace, and I know that there are some who, when the word grace is mentioned, only want to see it defined in the context of God's business with believers. And I understand that to some degree. And maybe there is a sense in which when you talk about the concept of grace, that God's unmerited favor, His kindness, His goodness is bestowed only upon the elect. And that's true as far as it goes. And I mentioned when we talked about grace, the concept of common grace. Well, if you don't like the word grace in its common feature, I mentioned other words that could be used like common regard, 
common benevolence, common beneficence, common kindness, common goodness. And that is very true also with the idea of mercy as we discussed it. And also even this morning with the concept of love. God in a general way does love all humanity. The Bible teaches it. And we must affirm it if in fact the Bible teaches it. Now, there is a sense, of course, in which we have to qualify what we say about this kind of love. It's different than saving love. And we'll get into that in a moment. It is different. But we cannot turn the Bible to a place where we want it to say what we want it to say. We have to allow it to speak for itself. And there is a sense, generally speaking, that God is beneficent toward all whom He has created. He is commonly regarding, in a lovely sense, all that He has created. And He loves all mankind, all creation, in the sense that He allows them to live and to breathe, to propagate, to prosper, to flourish. Now, having said that, there is a discriminating love. There is a unique love. There is a saving love, a special love that God has for His chosen people, His elect, His church, His bride. We would say it in a new covenant sense. And yes, while it is true that God loves all mankind, God loves His creation, When He created all things, He said it is good. He said it is very good. And God loves all that He has created. But even beyond that, even above that, even transcending His general love, His general regard, His benevolence for all creation, even the plant kingdom and the animal kingdom, to say nothing of mankind, the crown of His creation even though God has a generic, we might say, love for all of His creation, He has a superabundant love, a special love, a saving love, a miraculous love, an abounding love, a lavish love that goes far beyond anything that creation could ever know. And that love is for His people. We read it in that psalm that we read together that God will promise to fulfill all of His covenant love, all of His covenant faithfulness as He has bestowed it upon the undeserving, which frankly makes His special love, His saving love, all the more special when we realize there was nothing that we did to have earned that love. He loves us. Why? Because He loves us. He loves us because He desires to place a special, superabounding, transcendent, lavish love upon us that we don't deserve. And if mankind in creation has God's general love for them, then God in His super love, His electing love, the love of grace, the love of lavish, electing, predestinating grace then we ought to be more humbled and more thankful as a Christian people than any other people on the face of the earth. And so yes, yes, there is a love 
for mankind in general, but for Jews and Gentiles who are loved by God through the Lord Jesus Christ, there is a love that far exceeds anything we could ever imagine, even if we were an unbeliever experiencing life and breath and family and children and grandchildren and what appears to be the love of God. And there are so many people who assume that what they're receiving as unbelievers in this life is God's love and is God's regard. And in a sense, they're right. But in another sense, they don't have any idea about God's special, saving, unique love as we experience it. That's why we ought to be the most joyful, happy, fulfilled, lovely, loving people on the face of the earth because God has lavished upon us what He has not lavished upon any other people. That's the love of God. And we ought to rejoice in that love. We ought to bask in that love. We ought to be those kinds of people who are humble and who are proclamative of all of this love of God because we're the ones who've experienced it. We're the ones who are the recipients of a love that the world knows nothing about. Even as I myself, as Pastor Ray communicated a moment ago about watching Mike Butler as he lay dying and listening to him a couple of weeks ago, I had a very, very clear and cogent and comprehensive relationship of a discussion with Mike in which we sort of, as it were, concluded our relationship by wonderful words as I asked him questions and as he responded to me as he lay in that hospital room and as I asked him about his relationship with Christ and his relationship with his family and his relationship with others. And one of the things that was shared with me was there was an orderly who came into the room and Mike and his son realized that it was an orderly who had in years earlier worked with Mike's son. And Mike immediately, as he himself lay dying on that hospital bed of a serious form of cancer, was concerned not about himself but about the orderly. And he said to him, Do you know the Lord? And the orderly, amazingly in the South, at least as it seems to me, responded like this, I don't know that anybody's ever asked me that question. And he said, you need to know the Lord. And Mike in his final days was handing out a John MacArthur booklet called Examine Yourselves. And Lord willing, maybe we'll have a few hundred of those at his funeral because one of his dying requests to me was, is there any way we can pass out as many of those as possible at my funeral? You see, my friends, That's being loved by God in a special and a unique way where you are not consumed with yourself. Where as you lay dying, you know it, your family knows it, all those around you know it, the doctors and the nurses know it, and yet your focus is not on yourself, your focus is on the love of God and what He's done in your heart and your love for others that they come to know Jesus Christ. See, that's... That's the love of God. That's the special saving love of God that the world knows nothing about and ought to be a message that you, like Mike Butler, would be sending. That's the definition of God's love. What about the biblical basis of it? What about the biblical basis of it? Let me give you two categories, two categories this morning. The first is what I mentioned about God's love for mankind in general. That's the first category. 
God's love for mankind in general. Only a few passages. And then second category, God's love for the elect in particular with a much larger list. And it stands to reason, of course, because the whole Bible desires that God be proclaimed in His particularity of love for those whom He has chosen. And so, first category, God's love for mankind in general. Look at Matthew chapter 5. We've looked at it a couple of different times, and as you can very well perceive in these messages on grace, mercy, and love, that there's overlap with several of these passages. And we've looked at Matthew chapter 5 before. We've referred to it both in the message on grace and in the message on mercy. And so we do this morning regarding the message of love, God's love. Matthew chapter 5, verse 43. You have heard it was said. That doesn't mean that it was what the Old Testament said. It's just what the people to whom Jesus was speaking had heard that it was said, and it is this, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That's not what the Bible says, but that's what they heard that it was said. And Jesus corrects that in verse 44 by saying to you, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. And you know what the Bible does there? It equates our need to love our enemies with the love that the Father, our Heavenly Father, has for His enemies. Do you see it there? Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. In other words, we'd say it in our parlance like this. Love your enemies just like God loves His enemies. You see? God loves His enemies, at least in some sense. How does he do that? Well, verse 45 says, For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good. That's God's common regard. That's an expression of his love, at least in some sense. And he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. And then Jesus chides those who have believed a misnomer like love your neighbor and hate your enemy when he says this in verse 46, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do, you not, e- do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? In other words, how is your love this abiding love, this regard for mankind. How is that expressed when you love somebody who already loves you? When you have regard and greet your brother, well, he's your brother, you ought to greet him. What more are you doing than others? Don't even the Gentiles do that? They love those who love them. They regard those who regard them. You see, it's a kind of Christianity that says, love your neighbor for sure. That's the second commandment of the law but love those who don't love you. That's the expression of love that will go far, that will show, verse 48, that you are maturing as your heavenly Father is perfect. Be fully mature as your heavenly Father Himself is utterly perfect. Love your neighbor and love your enemy, just like God does. And you see, that's God's love for mankind in general. Look at Luke 
chapter 6 for a variation on this theme. Luke chapter 6, capturing all that Jesus spoke regarding this matter. Luke chapter 6, verse 27. Luke 6, 27. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you, to one who strikes you on the cheek, Offer the other also, and from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And here's the evaluation, here's the comparison, and you will be sons of the Most High. And then listen to this, for He is kind or loving to the ungrateful and the evil. He's kind, He's loving, He's he's regarding those who are His enemies. Now, don't misunderstand. Someone could take from that text and run to its illogical conclusion and say, well, then if God just has regard or kindness or love for the evil, then that just means that in eternity we're all in. We're all in because He loves them. So you have to be careful when you read your Bibles to understand that sometimes some of these senses, for instance, here in the love of God is different than another sense of the love of God. And you have to discriminate between these two. You have to see them in their different contexts. Look at, for instance, Mark chapter 10. You remember the rich young ruler. You remember in Mark chapter 10, the rich young ruler was coming to Jesus and he was proud and he was arrogant. He was an unbeliever. And there's nothing in the text that indicates to us that he ever became a believer. In fact, the text seems to sway us to the idea that he walked away sorrowing because he had much money, many possessions, and he wasn't willing to do what Jesus asked of him. And that appearance, or so it seems to us, makes us think that he walked away from Jesus Christ forever. Mark 10, 21. And Jesus asked his father, or excuse me, Mark 10... 17, and as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. In other words, where's your heart? Have you done these things from the heart? What's the indication in your words and actions? And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. Maybe so, maybe not. And then Jesus, looking at him, and then what does the text say? Loved him. Jesus loved the rich young ruler. He loved him. He had compassion upon him. Now, you would otherwise assume based on somebody's theological system, that if he loved them, then he's in. 
Because if he loves mankind in general, then they're all in. And yet Jesus, even loving him, said to him, You lack one thing, go sell all that you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Verse 22, Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And even the disciples, when Jesus said, It's easier for a rich man, like this man, i.e., this man himself. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And you ask the question, how easy is it for a camel to go through the eye of a needle? And what's your response? It's impossible. And that's why the disciples said, well, then who can be saved? And Jesus' response was, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. He can even save a rich man. He can even save a rich man by opening his eyes and showing him that he really didn't follow the Ten Commandments, that he really wasn't willing to part with his riches, and that he realizes that and is ashamed of himself. And because God is showing him that, he gives away his riches like Zacchaeus, even up to four times as much, because he wanted a relationship with Jesus. And with a person like Zacchaeus, God was able to do the impossible. But don't miss it. Jesus loved the rich young ruler. Even all the way back in Deuteronomy. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 10. This is not anything new. This is not something that Jesus brought onto the scene that had never heretofore been established. Jesus certainly brought it into view like no other. He gave and lived and articulated a love that was personified in his person like no other, to be sure. But even in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 18, it says, He, referring to the Lord your God, executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. And then verse 19, Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners implied yourself in the land of Egypt. And if you, of course, go back into the New Testament and then you see, for instance, the parable of the Samaritan and you see Jesus really zeroing in on the idea of who is my neighbor and the answer is anybody around you, those in need, those who need to be loved. That's your neighbor. And you're not going to walk up to somebody who's on the street and they're laying there crippled or dying or anywhere in between, and when you see them and when the bowels of compassion are flowing in yourself and you see the need and you want to meet the need, you're not going to go up and say, now, are you a Christian or are you an unbeliever? Because if you're an unbeliever, I'm not going to love you. But if you're a Christian, then I'm going to do everything I can to love you and take care of your needs. No. The idea is whoever is around you is indeed your neighbor and you are to love them. Love them. Show them the compassion of Jesus Christ. Show them what Christ 
has done for you. Just like Mike Butler in that hospital bed, I want to show this orderly. I want to show him the love of Christ. I want to find out what is the status of his soul. You see, that's, that's the idea that flows from God, who is our heavenly Father, who loves his enemies and he does good to them. I love my enemies and I want to do good to them. Doesn't it say in the latter part of the book of Galatians, Galatians chapter 6, that we're to do good to all men, especially to those of the household of faith. You see? Now that's God's love for mankind in general. And if that's all we knew about love, it would still bless our lives, but it would fall far short of the love that we can see as manifested in God through Christ to us. And I want to show you some of these passages, and they are rich. Look at Proverbs chapter 8. Proverbs chapter 8. And you say, why would we go there? That's not a passage that's speaking directly about Christ. That's true, even though Paul says in the book of Colossians that in Christ is hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And if, in fact, all treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found in Christ, Proverbs 8 personifies wisdom like this. Proverbs chapter 8, verse 17. Here's wisdom talking, which is God talking, which is Christ talking. Proverbs eight seventeen. I love those who love me, and those who seek me diligently find me. You say, what's significant about that? I'll tell you what's significant about that. What was your life like before you knew anything about the wisdom of God? What was your life like before you knew anything about the Bible? What was your life like before you knew anything about Holy Scripture? It was a life that was more impoverished. It was a life that was less than filling and fulfilling and rich in your experience of knowing, knowing God and of knowing Christ. And yet, this is what the Bible tells us about the love of God. It says, I love those who love me and those who seek me. The wisdom of God through the love of God will diligently find me. Look at verse 21. Granting an inheritance to those who love me and what? Filling their treasuries. Oh, my friends, do you know of this love? Do you know of this love that God purposes, He plans, He promises, He predestines you and me to experience the fullness of the treasuries of the wisdom of God? Oh, it's marvelous. Look at Isaiah chapter 63. You want to talk about the love of God? You want to show someone the love of God? Look at chapter 63 of Isaiah, verse 7. I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord has granted us, speaking, of course, to Israel, and the great goodness to the house of Israel, that He has granted them according to His compassion, according to the abundance of His hesed, His steadfast love. For He said, Surely they are My people, children who will not deal falsely, and He became their Savior. In all their affliction He was afflicted. My friends, that's love. That's love. When you have a God who loves you enough that when He sees your affliction, He's afflicted, that's love. 
That is love. You ever had that kind of love expressed to you even on a human level? That when you're hurting, you know that inside the heart of another person, whether they're related to you or not, they are hurting because you're hurting. They're afflicted because you're experiencing affliction. This is the love of God. And the angel of His presence saved them, verse 9, in His love, in His love, and in His pity He redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. Look at Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 31. Speaking of the new covenant. Jeremiah 31. Verse 2, thus says the Lord, the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness. Do you remember we read that when we talked about grace? When Israel sought for rest, the Lord appeared to him from far away, and this is what the Lord said. Please know this. Know this about yourself because of what God has done in Christ for you. I have loved you with a love that will peter out over time. Is that what it says? I, I've loved you with a love that you can see occasionally. No. I have loved you with what? An everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. And I'll continue it for all time and forever. That is love, my friends. Have you ever had a love relationship like that? I don't see any hands. I mean, what a relationship. When everyone breaks down around you, when love is not coming your way, when you're not cared for as you ought, you're going to question the love of that person. You don't have to question God the Father's love. I have loved you with an everlasting love Look at Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 16. This is such a rich chapter in our Bibles because it talks about how unlovely we are. It talks about how Israel was such a faithless bride. And yet, look at verse 1. Again, the word of the Lord came to me, that is Ezekiel, son of man, that's what he was known as, make known to Jerusalem her abominations, and say, Thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, Your origin and your birth are of the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. And as for your birth, on the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling cloths. No, I pitied you to do any of these things to you out of compassion for you, but you were cast out on the open field, for you were abhorred on the day that you were born." Can you picture the scene? The old ancient way of birthing a child and all of this tender care that was supposed to come that way. Your cord wasn't cut. You were not washed to cleanse you. You were not rubbed with salt. You were not wrapped in swaddling clothes. No nurse was around to pity you. Nobody was doing anything out of compassion for you. And as soon as you were born, you were just thrown into an open field and you were abhorred. On the very day you were born. I mean, somebody would say, who would do such a despicable thing to a little defenseless baby? You ever seen women around newborn babies? Boy, it is a sight to behold. They just, oh, oh. I mean, it's just amazing. 
my wife has eight children, and every time she gets around a newborn baby, here's the first words out of her mouth, I want another one. I want another one. Can you imagine the evil in the heart of a person who would take a sweet little baby and do none of these things to care and then just toss them into an open field? Verse 6, And when I pass by, God personified through Ezekiel, and when I pass by, I passed by you and saw you wallowing in your blood. I said to you in your blood, Live! I said to you in your blood, Live! Giving you life. God says to His own people, I made you flourish like a plant of the field. And you grew up and became tall and arrived at full adornment. It's as though God the Father Himself reached down in that open field and He picked you up and He wiped you off and He cleansed you and He said, Live! And he did everything to bring them up. Your breasts were formed and your hair had grown, yet you were naked and bare. Notice verse 8. When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love, the marrying age, the age of conception, and I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. That's an Old Testament way of talking about a marriage vow. Spreading your garment over somebody was you saying, they're mine. I'll take care of them. That's a, that's a marriage engagement. That's a wedding ceremony. I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow, that is my wedding vow to you, and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. Don't ever doubt the love of God. God loves us even when we are wholly unlovable. Look at Hosea. Hosea chapter 14. Hosea 14, 4. This is what he says to his people. I will heal their apostasy. I will... Oh, this is so wonderful. I will love them how? Freely. I will love them freely. For my anger has turned from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. Look at Micah. Micah's prophecy, the last chapter of Micah, chapter 7. Micah 7, verse 18. What a way to conclude a a prophecy like this. Micah 7, 18. Who is a God like you? Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in what? Steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. That's God's love to His people. It's a forever love. It's a saving love. It's a special love. Nowhere in the Bible is that kind of description, Ezekiel 16, Micah 7, any of these other passages, are they ever depicted of the unbeliever, of the sinner, of the reprobate? only of what our God is doing in a saving, special, unique love for His people. 
This is, this is wonderful. This is glorious. This is the love of God. Look at John chapter 14. John 14. Christ dies for sinners and this special saving love is enacted. It's a marvelous love. John 14, verse 15. If you love me, Jesus said, you will keep my commandments and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper, that is the Holy Spirit, to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth with whom the world cannot receive. You see, there's a differentiation here. There's a distinguishing. The world does not receive this kind of love. The world does not know the spirit of truth because they're living lies because the world neither sees him or knows him. You've got to see a distinguishing there. You've got to see a discrimination. But he says to believers, you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. And specifically here, main reference, primary reference is Jesus assuring the apostles of His very presence with them through the Holy Spirit, especially so that they could be the infallible writers of Scripture. I'll not leave you as orphans, He says, verse 18. I'll come to you, I'll come to you in the person of the Holy Spirit. Yet a little while the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live. You also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father and you and me and I and you. What a wonderful intermingling of our relationships together. Verse 21, here it is. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be what? Loved by my Father. You want to know the love of God? Then believe in Christ. Repent and turn to Christ. If you want to know the love of God, if you want to know the saving love, the special love, the sanctifying love of Jesus, then believe in Him and you will not only be loved by Christ who died for you, you'll be loved by His Father. And He says, And I will love Him and will manifest Myself to Him. Look at chapter 15 of John's Gospel. Look at verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. Verse 10, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. Chapter 17, His high priestly prayer. Verse 26, I have made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known, here it is, that the love with which you have loved me, Jesus speaking to His Father, may be in them. And I in them. You only have the love of God through the redemption by Christ. And if you have redemption by Christ applied to your account, you are recipients of the love of God. And someone's going to immediately say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, you tell me the Muslims, Buddhists, they don't have the love of God, they pray to God, they work to God, some of them give up their entire lives for God, some of them are martyrs for God, they're not loved by God, if they're not loved by Christ, they're not loved by the true God, they don't know the true love of God, they may know some regard, they may have some benevolence given toward them because they're a part of God's overall creation, but they don't know the special love of God. They don't know the saving love of God. They don't know the Christ-redeeming love of God. And that's why we ought to share it with them. Look at Romans chapter 5. Romans 5.5. 5. 
This is one of the greatest passages in the New Testament on the love of God. Romans 5, 5. And hope does not put us to shame. Why? Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. How would you like to have the Holy Spirit take God's love and just pour it lavishly into your heart? There are a lot of people, and maybe you might be in that number, who have in your heart nothing but hatred, bitterness, anger over how someone has treated you, over how someone has hurt you. And you've been seething with that anger and that bitterness for a long time, maybe your lifetime. Maybe it was how your parents treated you. Maybe it was how someone else treated you. Maybe it's even your anticipation of the pattern of life that you think you've been mistreated and you're looking even in the future at someone and their potential mistreatment of you. And your whole life is wracked with anger and bitterness. Would you like to know the love of God? It can be poured into your heart by the Holy Spirit. That's what it says. And for believers... It's true. Look at the next verse. For while we were still weak, that may be you, read in there bitterness, anger, malice, slander, whatever it is, while we were still weak, weak in our sin, unbelievers, unregenerate, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. Verse 8, But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's love. That is love. If you've ever wanted to be loved, here it is. Lavish love, pouring it into your very heart. Look at chapter 8. You say, well, will it last forever? Romans 8.31, What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously, lovingly give us all things? If He's given you Christ at the cross, don't you think He's going to give you everything else? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who's to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. He's at the right hand of God. He's interceding for us. Nothing will separate us from the love of Christ. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. As it is written, for your sake, we're being killed all day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And they were experiencing persecution that no doubt some of them, like you and I, will probably never experience. And verse 37, he says, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who what? Loved us. Love. That's redeeming love. That's dying love. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation. Folks, that covers it all. Will be able to separate us from what? The love of God. In Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you want to be loved like that? Do you believe you are loved like that. This is love. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It just goes on and on. The Bible 
keeps repeating and emphasizing the love of God and the love of Christ. Chapter 5, verse 14, For the love of Christ controls us, constrains us, moves us, motivates us, prods us, because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, and therefore all have died, that is, all who've believed, and he died for all, that is, all who've believed, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. He loves you. Chapter 13, verse 14. Here's the inter-Trinitarian love of 2 Corinthians 13, 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's one member of the Trinity. And the, what? The love of God. That's God the Father. And the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. What a prayer and what a reality. Ephesians chapter 2. We looked at it in the first two messages On grace and mercy, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because, because, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Look at chapter 3, verse 19. And to know the love of Christ that does what? Surpasses knowledge. You don't even have... You don't even have intellectual categories, and neither do I, to understand the surpassing love of Jesus Christ. That's why you can sit in a hospital bed and when asked the question, how are you doing? Blessed beyond description. Blessed beyond belief. Blessed beyond deserving the love of Christ. I don't know what Mike Butler was experiencing, but received an email this morning from his wife who said that in those last moments, literally, she would ask the question, how are you doing? And he would just say, what I'm seeing is amazing. Amazing. And you know what I thought? It's amazing grace. It's amazing love. How can it be that that, my God, should die for me? This is amazing love. Look at 2 Thessalonians 3, 5. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Titus chapter 3. This is telling us about our salvation. Titus 3, 4. But when the goodness, and here it is, and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His mercy. First John chapter 3. You say, still yet more on the love of God. First John is filled with it. First John chapter 3, verse 1. See what kind of lo- love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God And so we are. What kind of love is this? What love is this? Beloved, verse 2, beloved. What a great term. We are God's children. How can it be? Verse 16 of that same chapter. By this we know love. You You don't even know anything about love. I don't know anything about love unless I know this, that He laid down His life for us 
And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. I don't even know anything about love unless I know the love of Christ, unless I know what Christ did by loving me, by giving His life for me, laying down His life. Look at Jude 21. This is, this is the love of Christ. And we're even told, keep yourselves in the love of God. You said, I thought God loved me. Yes. And there's a sphere of that love and you keep yourself always in that sphere by obedience by doing what God wants you to do, and you'll be forever experiencing the fullness of the love of God. Revelation chapter 3, verse 19. To the church at Laodicea. And you have to say this with regard to love. Those whom I love, I what? I reprove and I discipline. So be zealous and repent. That's a part of love. Loving people and telling them what is true, speaking the truth in love. That's the love of God, my friends. And now all of us, no doubt, are saying, how can I receive it? How can I know of this love? What can I do? Well, look back at 1 John chapter 2. This is, this is what the Bible tells us. How can I experience the love of God? Chapter 2, verse 5. Here are some tests to know whether either you have that love or the roadmap to tell you where that love can be found. 1 John 2, 5. But whoever keeps His Word, that's obedience, commandments, verse 4, in Him truly the love of God is what? Perfected. By this we may know that we are in Him. Do you, do you know that you're in Him by the love that you share with others, by the love of obedience? Whoever says he abides in Him ought to walk in the same way as He walked. Look at verse 15 of that same chapter. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is what? It's not in him. You can just say, reverse the process. If I love the world, God the Father doesn't love me. If you, if you want to know the love of God, hate the world. It's as clear as anything. Look at chapter 3, verse 17. But if anyone has the world's goods, in other words, you are fat and sassy, you've got all that you need and you see your brother in need and yet you close your heart against him, how does God's love abide in that person? You see, you say, well, you know, I love God and God has blessed me so much. And how many times have you heard somebody who's rich, got all they need, God has just blessed me so much and yet they're stingy and they don't give up what they have for the sake of those in need, some that they even see right around them. And the question of the Bible is, how does God's love abide in you? How does it abide in you? Look at chapter 4, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is what? From God. Love is from God. Even if you have the capacity to love anybody, it came to you from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. It's the very essence of who He is. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. Here's how you can know and experience the love of God, that God sent His Son, His only Son, into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and He sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. You can experience the love of God if you affirm that Jesus Christ has become your satisfaction. He satisfied the wrath of God on the cross 
for every single moment of time that you and I had no capacity or no desire or no will to love anyone else. And he died for all of that. So that when you and I repent and return to Jesus Christ as our Creator and Lord and we speak of God's love for us, then infused into us is a love for the brethren. Verse 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. Look at verse 15. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God and God abides in Him and He in God. So we've come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love and whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in Him. By this love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment because as He is so also are we in this world. There's no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. And then this grand statement, we love because He first loved us. Everyone who believes, 1 John 5, 1, that Jesus is the Christ, has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments, for this is the love of God. Ask yourself the question, does God love me as I perceive my desire to keep the commandments? If I have no desire to keep the commandments, if the pattern of my life, if the habit of my actions are to love myself, And not to love God and not to love the commandments, I have no right to say that God loves me in that saving love, that special love. But if you have a desire to minister to other people, if you have a desire to reach out to them, if your heart of hearts is saying, how can I minister to my brethren? How can I do good deeds to those around me? Then you might very well have experienced the lavished love of God. I suppose that's exactly what John meant in John 3.16, for God so loved the world that whoever believes in Him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Let's bow together in prayer. Father, thank You for Your love. We don't know love except as we see it in you and what you've given to us. Thank you for pouring out, lavishly giving to us this love of yours. Father, I pray for those who don't know you, who are sitting even right here, that they would have been so overwhelmed with even the possibility, the opportunity to receive such love. May you lavish it upon them. May you shed it abroad in their hearts because they've realized that while being a sinner as they sit, Christ Jesus died for sinners to love them and to raise them up on the last day. Lord, I pray that if there are any here who don't know of that love, that they would experience it this day and then turn right around and love their brothers and sisters 
in Christ and to show regard and love and kindness and mercy to those outside the household of faith. And Father, I pray for those who do have the love of God already shed abroad in their hearts. You being rich in mercy because of the love with which you've loved us, may we bask in that love and may that love be a motivation for us to love one another from the heart. Oh, to these things we pray and ask Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord, through His Holy Spirit, to make it a reality in our lives. For we pray in His name. Amen.